0: A thick column of smoke rising after the first...
1: Early Sunday morning, the residents of Kiev awoke to the sounds of explosions. Russian cruise missiles had struck a railway facility just north of the Ukrainian capital in what officials say was an attempt to disrupt the flow of Western military equipment to the front lines.
2: President Vladimir Putin of Russia has said uh, that Russia will expand its list of targets, hitting things it hasn't hit before, if the West carries out with its pledge to provide advanced long-range missiles and artillery.
1: When Russia first invaded Ukraine back in February, strikes like these were a fairly regular occurrence in Kyiv. But this attack on Sunday was the first on the city in weeks, briefly puncturing an uneasy calm. My guest today is CNN senior international correspondent Matthew Chance, who made his way back to Kiev for the first time since March. We talk about the mood on the streets after more than 100 days of war, and why Ukraine's push to retake occupied territory in the South could shape the next phase of this conflict. From CNN, this is Tug of War. I'm David Rind. So, Matthew, we're speaking with you from Kyiv. It's 100 days today, actually, since the invasion began, talking on a Friday. And, you know, we saw you on that hotel balcony doing a live shot when the strikes began, when this thing really got started. But you're back now, back in Kyiv for the first time. What has changed since the last time you were there?
3: I've come to terms with the fact that I didn't think this was going to happen. You know, I can't believe that it's, it's lasted 100 days. But in terms of what's changed in the country, well, I mean, I, I, actually, I was out in Kiev today having lunch at an old restaurant, an old cafe on the street that, that I used to go to a lot. And you, you could sit there, you know, eating your salad, and you could think this has never happened, nothing could ever happen. because Kiev has bounced back astonishingly. Life seems to have returned to some degree of normality, that's right, isn't it? Yeah. It's got a bit better. Right. Um, And it's incredible because people are out here at lunchtime, they're in this lovely cafe. When I left in mid-March, there was nothing on the streets. There were checkpoints everywhere. It was palpably tense. At any moment, we thought there would be another airstrike and we were bracing for a Russian invasion, a Russian attack on the city, which never came, of course, because the Russians didn't get as far as the city centre, really. They were pushed back from the suburbs and they withdrew with their, delivered a very powerful blow by the defenders of the city. But, of course, you have to remember that behind that normality that you can see in Kiev today, the country has been traumatized. Mm. 20% of its territory has been occupied by Russia. Millions of its people have been displaced. Five million have actually left the country. Many of them have been forcibly deported to Russia. And, of course, the, the casualties, you know, the, the human Whole in terms of lives lost has been enormous There's, there's no really reliable figures but you know if you count the soldiers and the civilians on both sides it's tens of thousands of people that have died so far in this first 100 days of conflict and there's no sign at all of the war coming to an end because the military focus has shifted away from kiev to the east of the country
1: Right. I certainly want to get to that. But the towns around Kyiv that were occupied by Russians for a time, how are people there grappling with coming back and assessing what took place there?
3: I mean, it's really, really traumatic what's happened in the suburbs north and northeast of the capital where the Russians got to. They were pushed out of them, um, but they left behind a trail of, I mean, not just destruction, but appalling Human rights abuses, bodies of civilians in the Kiev region. Uh, officially, thirteen hundred civilians have died, but there are hundreds of other people that are missing, and they don't know where they are. And obviously, a lot—you know—some of them will have just hmm. left the country, but yeah, you know, the, the vast majority of them will be dead because they'd have identified themselves, you know, or emerged again by now. But still, people are coming back to their little suburbs, their villages. I was in one recently, actually, a couple of days ago. And within five minutes of getting to the place, we were shown by locals who came out to meet us, you know, three makeshift grave sites where they buried their neighbours.
1: As a lot of people are missing, you cannot imagine the eyes of mothers whose children were lost. They
3: talked to us about rapes, they talked to us about abuses they'd suffered at the hands of Russian soldiers there in March. The reason we were there is because we arranged to meet the police forensic teams there because they had these reports of bodies buried by the side of the road.
1: So we see that Russian troops have already gone for more than one month, but we still find. The evidence of their presence. It's just... astonishing,
3: isn't it, that even a month after they've gone, more than a month, so, still finding bodies. And they were there to exhume those bodies and to formally identify them and give them, give them a proper burial. It's an almost unsurmountable, insurmountable task that they've got at the moment, which is to try and find all the people who have been killed and you know, lying at the side of the road in a hedge or buried by the neighbours and sort of identifying them so their families can be you know, officially informed, and they can be processed in a way that a country processes its dead. This was Vitaly, just 43 years old, and the neighbours tell me he didn't present a threat to the Russians. He wasn't a soldier. In fact, he was vulnerable. He didn't have a job. He, he drank too much. His family had left him, but he was hungry, and he was trying to get some food from a Russian vehicle that was parked just here when they caught him and, uh, and shot him dead. but it's a massive task and it's very upsetting. And it just underlines just how traumatic this invasion has been for the people of Ukraine. It's been terrible and it's continuing. I mean, it's not over, remember, it's over in this little part of Ukraine for the moment, but it's still taking place in vast swathes of territory to the east.
1: Right. So the places where the fighting is still going on in the south and the east, what does that look like? What What is the picture of of the battles going on right now?
3: So the main focus of the fighting is taking place at the moment, the majority of it, in the Luhansk region, which is part of Donbass. It's half of Donbass. Donbass is made up of Luhansk and Donetsk. The Luhansk region, the last city still not fully under Russian control, is this place called Severodonetsk. There's been horrible, fierce street battles there. And we now know that 80% of the city has fallen under Russian control. Uh, But the Ukrainians are continuing to have a small contingent of people. there, troops there, and they're they're holding on uh, to the last little bit of it as long as they can. They're not giving up without a really tenacious fight. And one of the reasons they're doing that is that they want the Russians to pay as high a price as possible for that city, because it's going to be a big political win for the Russians. When they say, we've got the whole of Luhansk under our control. They can say, look, we've, we've, all, we've achieved you know, part of our military objective, which was to take over Donbass. The problem from the Russian point of view is that it's costing them a lot of manpower and a lot of weaponry and a lot of hmm. military energy to achieve this victory. And so they're pouring men and resources into that battle. They're, they're suffering a great deal by all accounts. And you know, it looks like they will win this, but at a very high cost and so the advantage from the ukrainian point of view is that you know while the military focus is on severodonetsk it means that other areas that russia has already conquered are being left somewhat exposed and so the ukrainians are taking advantage of that they say uh, launching counter offensives in various other places south of 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 donbass so in but in eastern ukraine uh, near the kherson region particularly there's lots of fighting going on there And the Ukrainians are having some success, they say, in taking back territory that had previously been conquered by Russia. They're bringing dozens of settlements and villages that that were Russian-controlled back under Ukrainian control. And so, you know, it's sort of ebbing and flowing. Russians are making gains in the northeast, further south. The Ukrainians are making gains uh, with the assistance, of course, of the sophisticated weaponry that the United States and other Western countries continue to provide Ukraine. That's making a big difference to them. Without that... They wouldn't be making any gains at all.
1: Right. That's what I wanted to ask. You know, US officials have said the war could last many more months or even quite longer than that, and they continue to send these weapons. So how long can the Ukrainians keep this up? Well, the Ukrainians can keep this up, it seems, as long as
3: the flow of weaponry and ammunition continues. It's a balancing act that the United States and others are trying to engage in in Ukraine. They want to give Ukraine enough weapons and enough sophisticated machinery to enable it to hold back the Russians and even to push them back a little bit. But they don't want to arm them so much that they can completely annihilate the Russians and even attack Russia itself. In fact, one of the big concerns has been that Ukraine would be given long range artillery that would be able to strike into Russian territory. The reason the West and the United States is reluctant to give Ukraine that kind of long range weaponry is that if they start hitting the territory inside Russia, you know, Russian Federation territory, it, however justifiable you may, you may find that, it could provoke a much stronger response from the Russians. Nobody wants this conflict to, to escalate. And so they're trying to sort of strike strike that balance. And so they've ended up giving the Ukrainians sort of longer range artillery, but not artillery with a range long enough that would pose a sort of existential threat to Russian towns and cities you know, well within the borders of the Russian Federation.
1: So 100 days on, you've spent time in Ukraine. You've even been back to Moscow, where you're based during this time. So you kind of spent time on both sides of the line. So as we look at this conflict three months on, what's your kind of takeaway for how this conflict has changed the region and and the greater world?
3: Well, you're right. I mean, I'm it can't be that many people that have come, come and gone from Ukraine to Russia and back again during this last few months. But I have. Well, I can tell you it's always the day of acute national pride here in Russia. But this year, it's especially poignant here in the stands uh, doing this spectacular display here in Red Square in the centre of Moscow. Because I went is- back to Moscow in May. I went to the May 9th Victory Day Parade in Red Square and and saw that,
1: saw Putin walk past. I am now addressing our armed forces and the militias of Donbass. You are fighting for our motherland, for its future, so that no one forgets the lessons of the Second World War.
3: You've got a sense of the, the mood amongst Russian people when it comes to what they call their special military operation. You're not allowed to call it a war. You're not allowed to call it an invasion. Punishable with a maximum of 15 years in prison, of course, if you broadcast that. I think my my, my journey back there, and my experience there, and then coming back here again, underlines to me that the world has changed. This region has changed. Russia is not the country it was. Ukraine is not the country it was. And we're in a much more dangerous situation than I ever thought that I would be witnessing in this part of the world. Russia is showing no sign of backing down despite the economic sanctions against it, despite the military setbacks that it suffered. And it re- it's really seems to be knuckling down for the long haul. I can't see an out. I can't see when they are going to stop this. And every sign we get from the Russians is that they are going to keep pressing, keep moving forward bit by bit, whatever the cost to achieve whatever military objectives You know they've set themselves. Because of their defeats outside Kiev, they've narrowed down their military objective to taking control of Donbass. They're making some progress in doing that. But once they've achieved it, are they going to declare victory and freeze the conflict where it is, look for for some kind of treaty? Or are they just going to use it as a launch pad to restart their strategy of pushing further towards Kiev and toppling the, the government here? Donbass, remember, is just across the border from Russia and so there's no problem with supply lines. They're literally driving from Russia to Donbass, to the front line. They can keep those supplies coming and they can make slow progress. And maybe, I mean, I don't know what their military strategy is because they don't make that clear. But, you know, you can just see them continuing to press forward bit by bit, whatever the cost as they get closer and closer to the Ukrainian capital. That's definitely a possibility.
1: And of course all the Ukrainians in that path will continue to suffer if that happens. Matthew Chance and Kyiv, thanks so much. Thank you, Dan. After the break, we go to the front lines.
0: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: After we spoke on Friday, Matthew and his team gathered up their equipment, left Kiev, and drove to the front lines of the Ukrainian counteroffensive in southern Ukraine. And he sent us back a voice note about what he saw.
3: Well, David, I'm now in... Uh southern Ukraine, very close to the front lines here. And, you know, we traveled here after after we spoke earlier. The reason we came down here to southern Ukraine is because, look, I mean, Ukrainian officials told us that while the main part of the military activity is taking place in Donbass and around that town of Severodonetsk and that area in Luhansk, the Russian effort Uh, to take that place so they could declare a victory there meant that they were leaving areas in the south that they already occupied and conquered, exposed. And and what Ukrainian officials told us is that the Ukrainian military was taking advantage of that and was really advancing, taking back lots of towns and villages sort of by the day, really. I'm speaking to Anton here, and he's saying it is at night. it is very loud at night Very loud
2: at night. it is,
3: right so in, in in the morning he's saying it's it's not so noisy it's a bit quieter so i mean i'll be honest we haven't found that to be entirely the case definitely there's some ebbing and flowing of the military situation here but we found that the front lines here to be much more static than were described to us ground it seems that you know, both sides dug in here heavily, have fought themselves to a standstill. Neither side. It sort of seems to have degenerated into a kind of World War One-style trench warfare, uh, with you know occasional artillery exchanges between the two sides. Ooh, that's outgoing, is it? You sure? You can hear the outgoing artillery shells streaming across our position here met some interesting people as well, including the platoon commander of the particular trench that we visited. His name was Serhin. It's it's interesting, isn't it? Because we're seeing all this Russian military equipment destroyed here. The Russians thought that they were going to win easily,
2: didn't they? Yes, yes. But that's not what's happening. Of course. Uh, Russian uh, thought uh, a few days finished war in Ukraine, in a h- few days.
3: We can hear it's still going yes, on now. Yes,
2: it's shell, and we can hear um, flight of shell. Yeah. Uh, Months later. Russian... Uh, Russian government planned uh, have victory in a few days. But uh, their plan was not real, and not real anywhere. And what about now? Do you think it will be finished in a few days, a few weeks, a few months? No. Or are we fighting now? Are you fighting now for years? I think we will fight a long time. A long time? A long time, of course, because our liberation, our territory, were not Russian occupation, destroyed completely villages, killed people. It, uh, to us, it's more hard. ...liberate yeah. our territory, because we must save our people, save our will, but we will do it, maybe uh, uh, longer time. It'll but, be, yes. it'll be a, a long war. And I think uh, we must be ready to a long war. For the most part,
3: it seems that the military focus at the moment of this in this conflict is very much up in the Donbass. It's very much towards Severodonetsk and other areas in the Lahansk region. And it, it probably won't be until after that situation is resolved that the focus once again uh, will return, unfortunately, uh, to this region. That might not be for, for several weeks from now.
1: Just one note before we go, this is the final weekly episode in this special season of Tug of War. As Matthew said, it does not seem like this war is ending anytime soon. And rest assured, CNN will be on the ground in Ukraine, covering every angle on TV and online. From time to time, we'll have updates on this feed. But in the meantime, CNN Five Things will have the latest for you every day. Just search for CNN Five Things wherever you listen. Tug of War is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Paula Ortiz and me, David Rind. Felicia Patinkin is the senior producer and Megan Marcus is the executive producer. Special thanks to Audrey Horowitz, Anne-Claire Stapleton, Louis graham Yule, and Elizabeth Roberts. Thanks for listening.
0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.